be speaking with Kate McKay, a researcher and lecturer at Sydney Health Ethics, about her new paper, which recently was published in the Journal of Social Philosophy. And her paper is called Authenticity and Normative Authority, Addressing the Agency Dilemma with Values of One's Own. Thanks, Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Yeah, well, thanks. It's great to chat with you about your paper. Yes, thanks so much for being here. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. It's yeah. a, such an interesting paper. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, could we just, as to begin, could you give us what you would say is the elevator pitch about this paper? What is it about? Yes, I will try to do that. I actually find this a very difficult paper to elevator pitch. <laughs> I see why, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Um, I would say, so this paper tries to propose a new solution to something called the agency dilemma, which is a particular problem in philosophy where um, we're not sure if a person is acting autonomously or not. And the reason we're not sure if they're acting autonomously is because they've made some sort of prior choice that seems to have delivered them into uh, the control of another person. So that could be, um, in the paper, I talk about religious devotees. That's been a common example in the literature. So we could be thinking about um, Marina O'Shanna's Taliban woman, mm -hmm. or we could be thinking about a nun, I think, or we could be actually thinking about a soldier. Yeah, or we I could thought that too, yeah. Yeah, the agency dilemma generally is taken to have broader application to women's lives because of the sort of oppressive socialization that we grew up with. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense that some of the decisions that we might make within that context are not truly our own. So that's what the paper tries to address. Okay, yeah. And I guess to complete the elevator pitch, which is clearly not very <laughs> elevatory, is um, my proposal is that we can address this with the idea of authenticity. Mm -hmm. So we can think about authenticity as converting values that are given to us through our socialization mm -hmm. into values that are our own values that we kind of, we are either endorse them or we at least don't feel alienated from them. And by kind of going through a very sort of minimal reflection process, I think we can take a value to be our own value. And so that's a way of addressing the agency dilemma through basically just assessment of which kind of values we can say, uh, what are our real commitments, what are our real values, what are our real um, beliefs. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I was wondering, is there anything that particularly motivated you to write this paper that made you think it was a real problem? Mm. I think there were a few things actually. I think I'd always been interested in the agency dilemma and something that Natalie Stolger says, and I've um, quoted this in my paper is that this is a kind of a real problem for feminists and she describes something called the feminist intuition mm -hmm. which is that on the one hand there are certain lives that women might choose that we don't think uh, as feminists that they've chosen authentically we think that the, it's a patriarchal sort of selection and it's mm. been informed by that kind of impressive society mm. But at the same time, as feminists, we're committed to taking women's reasons seriously. Yeah. And we're committed to taking their lives seriously. So it's that idea, I think I've actually kind of struggled with this since undergraduate studies, is that women should be able to choose to be a housewife, stay-at-home mom, mm. if that's what they want. Yeah. And some of the early feminist literature, certainly going back to maybe mm. the 80s or so, um, wouldn't have been satisfied with those kinds of choices because they right. don't seem to be free. They don't seem to 
challenge the status quo maybe? Yeah, because they're constrained by the social context and power dynamics within, within which they're being made. Exactly. Yeah. So there was a kind of discomfort between mm. wanting to respect those choices and mm -hmm. certainly wanting to respect those women and their reasons um, and then also wanting to change everything about the context <laughs> and which would require them to not make those choices. You know, mm. there's this idea that we all need to work together to fight the patriarchy. Mm. So um, if one person wears makeup, they're supporting the ongoing wearing of makeup right. for all women everywhere. Mm. Um, which is, again, it's a part of the feminist intuition, part of the agency dilemma that I didn't get into really is the adaptive preference formation around mm -hmm. um, things like beauty ideals and yeah. manner of dress. Yeah. But that's the kind of thing where, yeah, so I've been, I've been sort of struggling with these ideas as a feminist, as a woman, um, trying to navigate the world for a really long time. Yeah. 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 Um, something else that I wondered about, if it was part of your reasons why you were interested in this topic, it seems that behind some of the discussions that you reference, the Taliban woman and the women's mosque movement, yeah. um, it seemed to be that there was a question to what extent women could be held accountable for the, um, the consequences of the particular life choices that they've made, that they've taken on, particularly I think with these um, if we're looking at particular kind of radical political movements that have an oppressive patriarchal kind of culture but also some quite unpleasant ramifications in the wider world. Was that um, something that you were interested in exploring as well? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such an interesting area. Mm. Um, my thinking on this was sort of influenced by um, the work of a a uh, then PhD student at Lancaster University whose name is Rosie Mutton. Mm -hmm. And she was exploring in her PhD um, women who are terrorists. Right. And she was looking at groups around the world. So she was looking at some guerrilla organizations in Central and South America. She was looking at the IRA in Ireland. Mm -hmm. She was looking at people um, in the Taliban. And she was kind of exploring the roles that women play because they actually play really important roles within those. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that she found was that because women have certain assumptions made about them, about caringness and, you know, being nurturing and whatever, mm. the idea that they could be terrorists committed to these projects mm. was almost unthinkable. And so it actually led to them being very effective um, oh, at, at creating violence. Right. Um, oh. Which is really interesting, isn't it? Mm. And I, I guess part of what I was thinking, and certainly towards the end of the paper, I'm sort of discussing, like, a woman could authentically on the way that I've described authenticity, come to endorse misogynistic values. Yeah. And we need, I think we need to acknowledge that because we need to hold her accountable just the way we would hold a man accountable. Yes. And I don't find it unthinkable that a woman could actually think to herself demeaning things without it necessarily being just an implanted idea. Mm -hmm. I think she could actually come to hold that and promote that. I think we see women doing that yeah in an authentic way yeah yeah and it will fit with all sorts of her other values maybe mm. um and i think in the women's mosque mu movement you see a really interesting example where yeah. they'll they'll effectively be promoting the ongoing subjugation of women mm. in a really big way yeah um at the same time it will fit with all of their other values and um their idea of the good life yeah and i really think that in order to hold them accountable and even to kind of tackle 
what's bad about this, mm. we must first acknowledge that they could think it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So why don't we get into a bit more of the guts of the paper? Sure. Um, could you... Um, could you maybe just step us through the what do you think are the main points of interest or the central argument in this paper? The central argument of the paper, I think, traces through um, basically the discussion that's been had around autonomy mm -hmm. and how important autonomy has been in different kinds of feminist projects, really, mm -hmm. about staking a claim on normative authority for women's lives. Yeah, I guess to just kind of break it down a little bit more, Normative authority is basically just authorship over a person's life. It's the mm -hmm. thing that um, makes you the person who made a certain set of decisions. And insofar as that's true, you're the person we can hold accountable yeah. if things go wrong. Mm -hmm. And you're the person we can praise if things go well. Yeah. Normative authority gives us kind of access to both a causal chain, but then also a chain of responsibility, morally speaking. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's really important, and autonomy has been considered the primary way of establishing it. Right. Which is then a problem if you don't think that someone has autonomy, mm -hmm. then you don't think that you can hold them accountable. Yeah. So a lot of theorists have really been motivated to try to explain autonomy in ways that can account for things like women's oppressive situations or the oppressive situations that other people find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think that that means sometimes having to stretch the concept of autonomy out of shape a little bit. Yeah, sure. So my proposal, so through the paper, I sort of say, here are, here are the different ways that theorists have tried to use autonomy to address the agency dilemma. Mm -hmm. Here are the two kind of horns of the dilemma and why our accounts of autonomy are not satisfying. Mm -hmm. um, and then I propose a theory of autonomy that builds on what other people have argued. In fact, people who've argued it... Um, in the project of defending autonomy. Mm. So people like John Kreisman and Andrea Westland, who've both tried to propose theories of autonomy that would um, make sense of these kinds of tricky situations. Yep. Um, but since authenticity is always built into autonomy, mm -hmm. because we need to know that you're the author of yes. your actions to yep. hold you accountable, um, I think it kind of indicates how important authenticity is. Authenticity is a weird word. Mm. Some people don't like it. It has connotations of true self or yeah. kind of core self mm -hmm. um, ideas behind it, I think. Mm. And I'm trying to separate that out as well because I think that authenticity can be compatible with relational ideas of autonomy and mm. relational ideas of identity, which means yeah. that we're built through our relationships. And mm. there's, there's no such core self that you could just peel away the layers and you'd find out who you really are. Mm. You know, my paper doesn't endorse that kind of idea. Okay. Rather, the idea is that, you know, we're, we're brought up within a society. So you're mm. given all kinds of values and you're given all kinds of beliefs. And at a certain point, you know, you have to use them. That's mm. how you structure the world. Yeah. But then as we get older, we start to think about who we are and we start to rebel against some things that we've grown up with and we start to carve a path for ourselves. And to whatever extent you're doing that, you're in the process of kind of revising, reviewing, jettisoning some values, replacing them with others. Mm. Um, and maybe solidifying your commitment to some values as well. Exactly. Endorsing them yeah. as part of what you really think. Yep. Yeah, I like that way that you explained uh, that 
the core self or the true self might not be an actual fixed, rigid type of a thing, but that it might be a sort of a, a loose collection, or maybe even not that loose, it might be quite a cohesive collection of sort of values and beliefs and tendencies and motivations that we tend to move more towards over time and that we reinforce by drawing on them again mm -hmm. and again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a nice way to re-put it. Yeah. Um, so what did you find, um, did you encounter any significant challenges along the way writing this paper? I'm glad you asked me that because this was a really difficult paper to write. Oh, okay, what made it so? Oh, I think it was a tricky topic intellectually. Mm. The paper started with a hunch or a sort of discomfort um, a kind of nugget of an idea and it honestly took me years mm -hmm. to write this paper yeah I presented it to loads of different people so in my acknowledgements I've mentioned the Department of Philosophy at University of Birmingham the Department of Philosophy at Lancaster University mm -hmm. and a few different people Natalie Soldier took a look at it for me um, Alison Stone at Lancaster looked at it for me Herjeet mm -hmm. Marway at Birmingham and honestly it just took years and years and years mm -hmm. and so I guess to put that in timeline for people, you know, I presented this when I was actually a PhD student at U the University of Birmingham. And I, oh, that means okay. I probably started working on this paper in 2016. Oh, right. And I just, <laughs> it just <laughs> took me that long to get it right. Mm -hmm. And I guess one of the things to say about that is that I think that's sometimes part of the process of philosophy. Mm. Some papers come together quickly and easily mm. and this paper wasn't one of those papers. Mm. This one, I knew I had something. I wasn't sure what it was for a long time. Yeah. And it took a lot of talking with people and a lot of revising my ideas and sharpening the point, really. Mm. Yeah. And clearly setting up the space, clearly setting up the problem, mm -hmm. getting really clear on what my proposal was that yeah. I couldn't have done alone. And I think there's sometimes an idea that you know, philosophy is done solo when mm. we sit at our desks in our rooms. But this paper is a really good example of one that required a real community. Yeah. <laughs> a real intellectual community. I couldn't have written the paper without having that intellectual community. Yeah. No, I find that's often the case too. It's, um, yeah, it's so invaluable to be able to bounce your ideas off someone who can really critically grapple with them. Exactly. With yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it benefited oh, so much from the the support and attention mm. of colleagues. Yeah. I'm really grateful for that. Oh, great. Mm. Yeah. So what would you say are the main takeaway messages that you want people to um, get out of this paper? I think what I would really love for people to take away from the paper is that autonomy isn't the final word mm -hmm. on um, whether a person's life is their own. Mm -hmm. Um Autonomy isn't the final word on whether a person's decisions can be attributed to them and whether they can be held accountable. Mm -hmm. And certainly I think autonomy isn't the only value that we should look to to figure out whether a person's choices have a particular worth to them. Right. So I think um, as tricky as authenticity is, I think that it's really useful for thinking about scenarios where a person might not be autonomous they might have explicitly rejected autonomy like in certain certain of the religious devotee cases mm. and that not only can we accept that but we can still use that as a way of making them accountable yeah. for the further choices and further actions that come out of that 
decision that they've made. Yeah. So that's my final takeaway message. Okay. Much easier than my elevator <laughs> pitch. <laughs> yeah, no, I really like that. And what I particularly like about this approach, I think it um, has a really good way of responding to ambiguity, which is something that we encounter all the time in the world when we're looking at things like, you know, attributing responsibility, whether someone is authentically authoring their own life and yeah. all those kinds of, of big questions. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks so much for being the guest host, Lisa. Oh, thank you for the opportunity, <laughs> Kate. I've so enjoyed it. And thank you for your awesome paper. I've really enjoyed it so much. I think oh, I'm it's really glad. super interesting. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the She Research podcast. Um, you can find the paper linked in this episode's notes. This was the final episode for season one of the She Research podcast. We'll be taking a little break over the summer holidays here in Australia. And we'll be back next February with a new season and new papers and new research to tell you about. In the meantime, you can catch the rest of our episodes on Anchor, on Spotify, on Radio Public, or wherever else you catch your podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.